Hello and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. As Hans-Georg Hopprich continues our sermon series through the book of Acts, we will concentrate on chapter 18 today. Talking about the magnificence of insignificance, what is Christ's view of authority and what can we learn from Paul about humility, especially when it came to his integrity, popularity, accountability and ministry? And finally, what is our responsibility then? So let's get started now and listen to Hans Gierig's sermon. Good morning together. It um, means uh, so much uh, to all of us, I guess, to get together in Jesus' mighty name. We've been together with um, about uh, 200 or 220 uh, people from Ghana, on Fridays, uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, um, they met together as uh, people living overseas from Ghana within Europe in different uh, countries, in, in England, in uh, Germany, uh, in Denmark, in Holland, in France, in Spain, and so on. And there are about um, 8,000 or so people from Ghana that uh, uh, have formed um, fellowships um, from the Presbyterian Church, and they've asked me to share um, about um, raising funds for missions, uh, which is so exciting, and I found the preparation for it. Uh, I was reminded uh, to our time um, again to to Papua New Guinea when a lady, a widow, a lady widow with um, six kids, small kids, uh, her husband died prematurely, and uh, you know what she did with six kids? And I, it's, it's kind of moving my spirit still, even though it's been, I don't know, 20 years or so ago, uh, she came with an envelope, um, and in the envelope she had an incredible amount of money, that lady, that uh, widow, uh, and she planted a garden with uh, peanuts and uh, sweet potatoes and so on, you know, the things that really grow easily in, in the tropics. And you know what she did? I mean, she was Stone Age lady. And yet her mind, you know, developed in, in a way that was beyond I could kind of cope with. She sold uh, these fruits um, and uh, sweet potatoes and so on on the market and uh, put the money together and, uh, you know, she gave me that envelope. That's for world missions. She got the idea of what world mission is all about. Mission exists, as Margaret already said, and that's often mentioned in um, connection with missions, world missions. Um, and mission exists because there is no worship, you know. It's when all nations, people from every tribe and language, will worship the Lamb of God, the risen and exalted Christ. Then mission is finished. But till then, let's uh, uh, be engaged in, in that 
kind of mission. Mission that means we are sent. Missio from Latin means uh, being sent. And in the sending process, you, there needs to be a church that sends people out. And we welcome those that are listening to us, uh, maybe all around uh, the globe. Um, and that's for the thing that we exist as a, as a church. You know, we are senders. We take, but uh, we also give. Um, and because we are enriched uh, beyond what we can cope with, he, we can also present others with a gospel of grace and love. That's the truth. Uh, that's why we are here, um, to uh, present others with that gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, this morning, um, I want to go ahead with um, Acts uh, 18, as mentioned, the magnificence of insignificance. That's um, kind of a playing on, on words, but you will uh, uh, eventually know what I mean by that. And um, image, uh, a tennis, young tennis player said, image is everything. He uh, this young tennis star, and he uh, mentioned that in a television commercial as he lowers his sunglasses and winks into the camera. His clothes, his hair, his two-day-old uh, beard and the epitome contemporary style, he has what the world values most, that is status, influence, and power. In a sense, this, his message is, is very accurate, isn't it? To be great in our world, image is everything. Image you know, we were in an um, event um, last night um, uh, in uh, uh, Merbish uh, where, uh, I don't know, 6,000, 6,500 people got together and the, um, uh, there was a, a concert of, uh, you know, the Austrian army and, uh, you know, military generals were there, you know, the those that are decorated on both sides, and you saw them, you know, they came in and, you know, they greeted each other, and they, some of them, they clapped, uh, and the, de the lady defense minister was even there. So we had a great time yesterday, you know, listening to this beautiful military uh, concert uh, there. Uh, image... A military general did not shine their brass where their stars who would salute them. You know, if, if you don't see these kind of nice medals and so on, who would look at them? Nobody really would, you know, kind of 
salute them not at all. If, politician, if politicians didn't arrive in the um, uh, limousines, you know, with a nice star in it, who would listen to their speeches? If corporate presidents did not fly first class, who would call them successful? In every realm, greatness seems to require an image of authority and power, except in one realm. One realm. That's the family of God. That's the exception. Jesus explained this exception one day when a certain woman came to him with a request for her two beloved sons. A request that betrayed the son's secret ambition for authority according to world's standards of greatness. Now, what is it that Christ's view of authority? While Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, James and John's mother came to him with a request, and we read about it in Matthew twenty twenty one. Command that your kingdom, these two sons of mine, may sit one on your right and one on your left. Side. In a parallel passage in Mark 10, we learn that James and John came to Jesus with the same request themselves, not only their mother, but also them. You know, they want to have the status, a big name. Who would not understand them? I guess it is safe to assume that all three came together, mom and two sons, you know. Mom was probably walking there in the middle of, middle of their two sons, you know, and each son a bright, shining sun. And the mother was so proud. They seemed to have figured that Jesus would soon be establishing his kingdom on earth and mama wanted to ensure a good position in the new order for her boys. And is there a mom who does not understand? I mean, that's the natural kind of thing that you would expect from a proud mom. I mean, we need to be honest. And we can see that. That's authentic for a mom, isn't it? However, and that's a natural reaction as well. However, the rest of the disciples bristled at their boldness because unfortunately they wanted power in the kingdom too. You see, there's a competition getting on. Who gets the last fight? And as a result, we read in Matthew 20, 24, 
the ten became indictment with the two brothers. Kind of a revolution came up. Thus we read, um, and, and there is a, a disheartening scene. Matthew 20, 24, they became indictment. The, and, and Jesus really, he is going towards it. And what a disheartening scene for the Lord Jesus. Can you imagine, for more than three years he had been teaching them the value of selfless living. The course was over. Graduation was near and now his prize students were bickering about who was the top dog. Thus we read in Matthew twenty twenty five. To 28, so Jesus called them himself and said, you know, that the rulers of the Gentiles' Lord is over them and they, their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. It is not so. But whoever wishes to become great, among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. While the world says you've got to be number one. That's the world's intention. There is no other intention there. Because you need to be there now. You don't care for the future. You want to be here now. It's my eyes. Greatness is measured by Jesus, by servanthood. If we desire true greatness then we must become servants. But what do servants really look like? Sure enough, we all need a model. It, it doesn't, it, it's not natural to us to see that. And thus, we need a model. You know, we want to look at something that is living up to that standard of a servant. If we don't have that model, we are confused. We don't know how this is happening. And, and I found it extremely helpful to see the Apostles Paul model of a servant. Uh, this is a good example of a person with a sermon, with a servant heart. Particularly at the close of his second missionary journey, that's where we have arrived already. We can observe his humble attitude in action. By this time, Christianity's influence had grown beyond Asia to key metropolitan areas of the world that was known up to then. This must have been 
so satisfying to Paul as he left Europe to return to Ephesus, to Antioch, um, and eventually back home. And it must have been exciting for believers among the way, along the way who had heard that the gifted apostle might soon be coming their way. Want to get a ministry going? They probably said, plug into Paul. He, he did it, you know. He's a proud guy, you know. You need to follow him. He did it. He performed perfectly. You need to follow him. However, despite the, this people saying that, the Apostle Paul demonstrated, and I want to pick up some of the qualities he demonstrated for greatness, for quality of greatness in God's eyes, for qualities of a servant that we can take with us for the days to come to have a picture, an example, a model. And the first um, model, the first quality of a servant is private integrity, a vow that Paul the Apostle took up. The first quality is hidden in a in a brief and, and kind of seemingly inconsequential detail in Luke's account, he tells us that after Paul had left Corinth for Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla in Acts 18, uh, 18 verse 18, he stopped in Cancrea and had his hair cut for he was keeping a wow. He had a haircut. You know, what a strange kind of mentioning in the Bible. You know, Dude, does the Bible talk about a haircut? I mean, David, you came up with a pretty good haircut this morning, and I admire you, and I had a haircut. My beard was cut last night, uh, and so on. You know, the Bible talking about a haircut. Isn't that funny? What do you reckon? You know, if we would all... Talk about our haircuts, you know, where did we go in the Sunday, on a Sunday morning service? Why would Dr. Luke mention Paul visits to a small town barbershop? His, this haircut represents the fulfillment of a vow that Paul had made to the Lord and provides us um, kind of a very rare glimpse into his spiritual life. The reference to his hair makes it almost certain that it was an, a Nazarite vow as read in the Bible in the book of Numbers. Number 6, 1 to 21, you can read about these haircuts if you like. This involved abstinence from drinking wine and from cutting one's hair for a certain period of time and at the end of which the hair was first cut and then burned 
along with other sacrifices as a symbol of self-offering to God. This is why it is mentioned, a haircut is mentioned there. You get a glimpse, you know, you get to the deeper end, as it were, in Paul's spiritual life. This is how he lived as a servant. For his vow, he, we see a private integrity, very private, very private, that became the spiritual seed bed of Paul's servant heart. Beneath the service, his godliness was enriching his ministry with quiet, hidden power. And it was also enabling him to remain humble. A particularly difficult response to the, in the midst of success and public acclaim. That was the first quality of a servant. And I want to remind you, that is first, private integrity. It's not a public kind of thing where everybody looks at you and, wow, look at him. Well, you see the haircut, of course, yes, but you never see deeper, you know. You just see, as it were, the surface, but you don't see deeper. And that's a private, private integrity. And the second quality of a servant that we can see in Paul's model is public Popularity, a refusal, a refusal. More acclaim met Paul when he arrived in Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla and started teaching. In Acts 18, in the following verse, in verse 19 and 20, we read, we, he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, and they asked him to stay for a longer time. Wow. You know, he was famous, and so they knew he was a great teacher, and they urged him, hey, stay with us. We want to have a great teacher. Wanted a well-known spiritual powerhouse to launch their church. The Ephesian asked Paul to stay. They may have in, even pleaded with him, saying, Paul, you are the greatest. You've won the battle. We need you. Stay with us. People love your teaching. And with you at the helm, this church will go places. You you are the man. Please stay. But as we read in Acts 18, you know, we have this incredible example of a servant. You see what Paul did? He did not consent. Paul say, saying no was simply uncertain. Confident that Aquila and Priscilla 
do a good job without him. He wanted to step out of the way and let their efforts flourish. His servant heart did not want his popularity to overshadow them. Can you see that? He stepped back and let Aquila and Priscilla go to the front. That is mission work all about. And we need to do exactly that more than one time in our personal life. Step back. Get out of your way. Let others do the job, especially when it comes down to the national church. Let them do. And I must admit, when we visited Papua New Guinea in 2018, we told the people, you know, we need to confess. We never thought that the church would thrive like that. Never, ever. We saw things happening we would have never thought happening, really. Step out. Get out of your way. Confident that Aquila and Priscilla could do the job. Thus, in comparison, we see Paul's attitude with the disciples' response to someone else exercising demons in Jesus' name. Jesus commands in Mark 9, teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and he told him to stop because he was not one of us. That's what we read in Mark 9, 38 40 to 41. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, Jesus says, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. That was Jesus. Certainly as a result of Paul's refusal to public popularity, Aquila and Priscilla's ministry did flourish. You see, he made a a consciously stepping back. And that is needed. That's a servant heart. Step back. Get in the background. Don't stand in the front. Get back. And thus, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 4 to 7, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to teach this his task, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has 
been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God makes things grow. True servants like Paul do not allow the siren song of fame to convince them of their indispensability. You know, you step out of your way and you, you are a servant of, for the Lord, not for people. They realize that they are just one among many people who make up a team and who need one another's encouragement. We do need one another. There's not a number one, a number two, but we are all servants. They are willing to reduce their own impact to lift up someone else's. Competitiveness and jealous, see, have no place in the heart of a servant. Neither is there room for isolationism as we don't isolate ourselves. Not at all. We are not the exception of everything else, but we let others go to the front so we don't isolate ourselves as we shall see when we read on now. The first quality of a servant is private integrity. The second quality of a sermon is public popularity, a conscious refusal. The third quality of a true servant is voluntarily uh, accountability. That's a deep need. Accountability. Let others know why you do and how do you think. I mean, when we listen to the uh, reports of uh, the Ghanaian a Presbyterian um, these last couple exactly what I mentioned, you know. Be accountable. Don't do your own things hidden away. You know what happens when you hide away? The devil will come and plant a, a black seed in your heart and you will always start to be, to de, you know, to deceit, be a deceit for others. Because you take, and that's often done, you know, that people take some money given to them for their private use, even though it was designed for God's kingdom. Can you see the kind of thing that happens if we are not accountable? Satan plants a black seed in your heart. That is the third quality, accountability. That's a Big need to be accountable in all details. And having promised the people in Acts 18.21, I will return to you again if God wills. That's what Paul said. That's his accountability. Paul set sail for Ephesus alone and we read in Acts 18 and uh, maybe we can see the map afterwards. Um, Acts 18, 22 to 23, but soon he landed in Caesarea. He went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he departed and passed 
successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia and strengthening all the disciples. Um, that takes, Paul takes a third journey. Being a servant, he thrived on relationship, not on applause. Instead of organizing flashy engagements for this third missionary journey, he operated side by side with people. They, he stayed in touch with those who needed him and voluntarily remained accountable to them. He didn't step out, but he stepped step by step with those that walked with him. That was accountability. And I'm very strong on this because I've seen so many bad things happening with people that are not ready to be accountable. They build their own kingdom instead of building God's kingdom. This is what Proverbs 27, 21 says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold and a man is tested by the praise accorded him. In Paul's crucible, the sparks of praise exposed humility and a genuine concern for individuals. And when he finally arrived in Ephesus, those servant qualities shone through again. You know, they made a clear way. And you could see these qualities in the servanthood of Paul. The first quality of a servant, private integrity. There was a vow. The second quality of a sermon, public popularity, a refusal. He refused to do it. And third quality, the voluntarily uh, accountability, a big need. There is yet another and last that... I can see from the text in Acts 18, uh, a mutual ministry, a service. In Acts 19, you know, these last verses for t this morning, Acts 19, 1 and 7, we read, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples, uh, and there were in all about 12 men. 12 men. What a great number. <laughs> you know, that's exactly the number Jesus took. 12 men. When Paul returned to Ephesus, he did not ride into, into town expecting to immediately take the reins from Aquila and Priscilla. No, rather he supported their ministry by sidling up to just a few disciples and focusing his efforts just on them. What we notice here is Paul avoided the crowds and the glory, wanting instead to labor alongside the other leaders in a mutual ministry. Paul was not showery or slick putting himself on a pedestal, no. Instead, he was like 
an unobtrusive. He he didn't put him to to the front. He didn't push himself to the front, um, and always there holding up others, supporting others, not himself. These are the four qualities the Apostle Paul stands for as a servant of the Lord Jesus. And we would do well to consider them for our personal service and being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is private integrity. There is public popularity, a refusal, voluntary accountability, a big need, a big need. And lastly, a mutual ministry, a service to others. And here we are. I mean, you know, that is, I think, whenever uh, we, we are here with you, you know, we, I'm challenging. I try to challenge, first of all, myself, of course, as I get ready. But now I want to challenge you. But because what matters is how do we respond to this? It doesn't help if we just listen to it. You know, well, the hands has made a, a big a call and his mouth is too open uh, and he's too loud and all sorts of things. It doesn't help. What is our personal responsibility? The teaching and life of the Lord Jesus together with Paul's example portray a kind of greatness rare to this world. Indeed, we have a responsibility in our churches, in Grace Church, here and wherever our listeners may be. We have a responsibility in our local church. That is where things are starting. They don't start out in the world, but they start here in the local, in your local church. Not out, out there, but here. This is where the starting point is. We know, of course, however, that servanthood is not easy. I really admit that. Um, it helps to have some guidelines to follow. We have a model, and it's good to have some guidelines. So the first guideline I want to uh, present you with is resist the temptation to adopt the world's new greatness. Uh, resist to it. The church is not a corporation with a chief executive officer, as they call him, a CEO. You may have heard of such kind of people aspiring junior con executives and uh, union laborers. It's a, the church is a family in which no one person has more value than another. Meeting needs is more important than growth charts, programs, and image. Ultimately, our only measure for, for what we may call spiritual success is the question, are you serving 
others. Are we serving one another in love? Do you serve another person in love? That's spiritual success, which you do not perform, but you practice. Do you see? It's not, you know, you don't see that in, in the public, but it's a, a matter of heart. And secondly, we must keep the whole body in focus, not just a small part of it, you know, saying, you know, the most success is for me. Don't want to see the others. That's not what the Bible tells us. Let me be straightforward. It's not the pastors that make a church great. You know, because we want to have the big names, you know, uh, even in, at Grace Church or in any other church, you know, we want to have the big ones. A big pastor. Study, you know, university man. It is the servants that make the church great. May do, many do not need, seem to believe this. We are kind of attracted by what we see. And that has such an influence on our performance. We want to see something. Instead, we depend on our structures and our superstars. And we know the system works. Just look at what the superstars are doing in their super churches. We have the statistics. They have the big buildings and the budgets to prove it. There is only one problem. There are not enough superstars um, to, to go around. Thousands of churches, but only hundreds of those superstars. Where are they? Can you see them? The church of Jesus Christ can, cannot run on superstars. And God never intended that. It should. God does not promise the church an affluence of superstars. But he does promise to provide all necessary leadership through the gifts of the saints. Those that are present to serve, ready to serve. This is why it is so important that you serve. We must keep the whole body in focus, not just small parts of it. The whole body serving one another with their God-given gifts. That is God's ideal for the church. And thirdly, emphasis the significance of being a servant. This is why I feel compelled to really Mention this this morning again and again. This is what a church is all about. This fellowship of people are servants that serve one another in love. Do you serve? Are you ready to be a servant? If we are honest, Christ's message that the last shall be first cuts across our grain. How can being last Help us to be first. That's a contradiction in terms. 
It only makes sense when we understand the significance of servanthood of God. To him, servanthood is not the insecure gesture of digging our toes in the dirt and saying, I'm just a servant, forget all about me, you know, I'm helpless and I don't know how things functioning, I don't know how to do, no, no, no. Neither it is a humble sounding form of spiritual pride or a manipulative martyr complex, what I would call like that. Genuine servanthood is confident love in action. The kind of love that sent Jesus from heaven to a manger and from a manger to a blood-stained cross. That's servanthood all about. That's our top example of servanthood. It is what being a follower of Christ is all about. Indeed, in a blink, the devil can turn something good like servanthood into something repulsive slavery. As a result, we receive we resist serving one another because no one wants to be a slave, whipped, taken advantage of, and power. The irony is that unless we become servants, we are slaves. Can you see that? You're either the one or the other. Either you are a servant of Christ, following in his footsteps, or you're a slave of man. You know, you want to be the big guy. The devil can do another sleight of hand trick with servant. If we went not watching closely, he can turn it into something self-serving. That is just of performance. Christian service is not our work, it's loyalty to the work of our Lord Jesus. In other words, and I want to finish in saying, we can build houses for the poor, visit the sick, or comfort the grieving, but if we do so without an inner driving loyalty to Jesus, we are performing and we are not serving. It's a big difference. And I hope we can take that from this morning because I urge you. This is the picture, the biblical picture is servanthood. Is serving Christ as he did. What motivates you in serving others? What is your motive? What can help us to serve more and perform less is Paul's attitude written down in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 5. This, then, he writes, is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. 
I care very little, Paul writes, if I'm judged by you and by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light that is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. My brothers and sisters, this is servanthood all about. Let's serve one another. So much joy is available to us in serving Christ. Serving one another. What a joy it is. It's such a great privilege. Serving one another and serving people. And following. We fixed our eyes. On the Lord Jesus. On him coming back. And having the last say. And I'm looking forward. You too? Are you looking forward? I'm looking forward indeed. To that very day. To see him. The poor servant. Jesus. Who served us until death. Lord Jesus, thank you that you showed us the cross this morning again and again. Your service to us so that we are enabled and set free to serve others. We thank you for that great model of Paul in his service. Thank you that you help us to be also models for others in serving one another in love and truth. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who puts the key in the lock and opens the door so that we can see clearly our lives before you. Thank you for your love and patience again for this hour of training. You give to us. Thank you for the privilege of being and getting together on these Sundays, these precious Sundays, that you care for us indeed. You care for our souls. You are the lover of our souls. You are the good shepherd of our souls. We thank you for being with us even this morning and in the days to come this very week where we can train again in serving one another and ultimately serving you, the risen Lord, the Lord that comes back. Thank you, Lord, that we can pay our attention to you, our God and Savior. You are the Lord above all lords. You are God above all gods. Thank you for your presence. And thank you for being with us and blessing us abundantly as we serve one another. In Jesus' name, amen.